This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello, and thanks for being with us on another podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. You can join us for new episodes every Thursday. And for regular updates to your podcast feed, just tap subscribe. This week, we're looking back at Roman life as part of our Ask the Expert series. We asked you to post your questions about the Romans on English Heritage's social media channels. And in this episode, we have the answers for you. Standing by are properties historian, Dr. Andrew Roberts. Hi there, Charles. And curator of Hadrian's Wall and the Northeast region, Dr. Francis McIntosh. Hi. So we'll begin with a few questions about the Roman occupation of Britain, which lasted from around AD 43 to AD 410. First of all, Alf Photographs on Instagram and Anita on Twitter would both like to know why the Romans invaded Britain, Andrew. So the Romans invaded Britain first in 55 and 54 BC under Julius Caesar. But this was an invasion that was limited in scope and didn't lead to a permanent occupation. It did lead, however, to the Romans establishing some contacts within Britain and alliances with some of the kingdoms, particularly those in southern Britain. Then in AD 43, after Rome has transitioned from a republic to an empire, relatively new emperor, Claudius, who was an individual who was part of the imperial family, but was never destined, well, never intended to be emperor. He came to power and he needed a way to prove himself so that he could hold on to his crown. And so he wanted to prove himself in in battle and he sent his, his army to Britain in order to essentially achieve what he hoped would be a fairly quick victory. As a pretext for this invasion, Claudius may have used some of the kind of the politics of the various British kingdoms and exploited them to Rome's advantage. So there was a a pro-Roman king, Verica of the Atrebates, who was expelled from his kingdom by another uh, kingdom called the Catavallauni. And these seemed to be quite hostile to Roman influence. So Claudius sort of seized upon this as a pretext for invasion. And this essentially leads to, ultimately, it's going to lead to about 350 years of of Roman rule. Interesting. Where's Verica of Acrobates from in modern day England? It's sort of around the the south coast, roughly uh, Hampshire, that kind of uh, area. Really interesting that, isn't it? So it's not cut and dry. They didn't just sort of turn up one day at all. This was decades in the planning in a way and also politically motivated under Claudius. Yeah, these things are are really sort of straightforward. I mean, you can see it in other ways as well, in a sort of a more broader context of the economics of conquest. The Romans use conquest in order to enrich themselves, both in terms of straight up sort of taking away the wealth of different provinces, but also the resources. And there is a very deeply ingrained desire for glory within within the Roman Empire, particularly its leaders, but also of its army. So this is a this is a typical thing that they would habitually do. And then of course there's there would also be some kind of specific reasons which were we think kind of tied up with Claudius's personal ambition. And I suppose there's also the softer aspects of cultural spread, that kind of influence as well. The more you can sort of get people to think like you the more you'll get on with them (laughs) and the more control you'll have over them as well. And I suppose taxes and all this sort of thing as well. Yeah, I mean, the Romans sort of felt themselves 
kind of culturally superior to other peoples. And so they kind of believe that their conquests were justified in that regard. Hmm. Um, and, and that there was sort of one way of doing things, which was kind of the Roman way. And it did, I think it certainly did help that if certainly for, for matters of trade and also for matters of peace, uh, at least on Rome's terms, if you could control peoples rather than necessarily having to kind of deal with them on, on, on their own terms. The Via Romana, you might call it, the uh, Roman way. <laughs> well, I hope that question is well answered by Andrew there for Alf Photographs and Anita. Moving on to one from Twitter, this is from T and C, who asks, why did the Romans never conquer the whole of the British Isles, including Scotland and Ireland? This one's for you, Francis. Well, kind of like, why did they invade? This is no easy question. There's no simple or one answer. But what we think was that it was just what they saw as Britannia was kind of their target, which is the whole island of what we would now see as Scotland, England and Wales. We don't think Ireland was ever really on the radar for them. It was ever really part of this kind of conquest. They could see it over, you know, when they were on the West Coast. And in one of the very early days, the early parts of their invasion, they did, we think, sail all the way around the north of Britain and visited the Orkney Islands and then possibly, and it's not clear from the sources, a, a place that they called Thule, T-H-U-L-E, maybe the Shetlands or the Hebrides, one of the islands there, we're not sure. So they did have the intention you know, of, of conquering all the way up to the north of Scotland, but that didn't happen as T&C has recognised. And there's multiple reasons for that. Quite a big one was Britain is part of a larger empire and the army goes where it's needed. So the army were making really good progress. In 83, there's a big famous battle at Mons Graupius, somewhere in Scotland. I will not commit to where I think that is. Nobody else will either. And after that battle, which the Romans won, troops were pulled away from the province of Britain to deal with invasions on the Danube frontier. So that momentum there was lost and that happened other times. There's always politics, as Andrew has said. And equally, certain areas were harder to conquer or take over than others and that's partly to do with the way the lie of the land you know the highlands of scotland are much harder to perform set piece battles which is what the roman army liked and the tribes were quite keen or were their way of fighting was very different to the roman army and it was more suited their landscape so for certain parts or particularly the north of scotland the army and the empire would have done a bit of a cost-benefit analysis, as we would say in modern business terms, and looked at how much effort might it have been to conquer even further north, and what would that gain them. And it was made, the decision was made that there wasn't enough benefit for the cost in terms of manpower and time and resources that it would take, which is why eventually the line of Hadrian's Wall was settled on. Okay, let's move on to another question. Curtis Reed via Twitter has a question about what Londinium would have looked like to someone from today. And Londinium, of course, is the Latin name for London. Andrew. So today, London is a, is a kind of sprawling metropolis that, that pretty much occupies the entire area within, within the M25. But Roman London, Londinium, was located pretty much exactly where the city of London is located today. And by the city, I mean the square mile. The financial so, district. Yeah, essentially the financial district. 
as far as we we are aware, there was no substantial settlement in this area before the Romans turned up, and London essentially develops fairly early on in in, in the conquests of Roman Britain after the Claudian invasion, and it grows up in order to kind of exploit the location at which the Roman army have built a bridge in order to cross the Thames. And this is hugely important for, for Roman expansion from the southeast of Britain to the centre and to the north and to the west. And it just so happens that at this at this point, we're not too far from where London Bridge is today. It's the perfect place to bridge the Thames. It's not too wide, the river is not too deep, and the banks are firm enough in order to essentially site a bridge and it will be stable. And it becomes a very successful successful city eventually by the turn of the, of the first century AD. It's essentially the largest city in the province and the provincial capital. And in many ways, it, it's very typical of a Roman city. Many of the Roman cities that you find across the empire, you'll, there'll be some great public buildings like a huge forum, which will have you know, a market and a space for law courts and, and things like that, and, and essentially everything you need to govern a Roman province. There'll be some large houses for the elite. There'll be smaller houses for, for the poorer, for traders, etc. I guess if you were if you were a sort of a medieval citizen of London or, or even someone who was living there in the 17th century, you'd be kind of familiar with it in, in, in sort of broad terms. The city that the Romans defined in terms of its size, in terms of its position, in terms of its focus, is kind of the same city that you see in, in the medieval period. Although the buildings were, were quite different, the walls of the city were retained and extended by the medieval residents, but it's essentially the same, essentially built on the same, rebuilt on the same location. London Bridge, although there's a, the Roman Bridge doesn't survive, is the medieval London Bridge is essentially rebuilt in the same place that the Romans put it because it's the best place to have it. And so until after the Great Fire of London at the end of the 17th century, the footprint of London is very similar to, to what you, you would have expected from in Londinium. Obviously today, when you go to the ultra-modern city, um, it, it's completely different. But I think what you you might find familiar if you were to walk those streets are uh, is really it's kind of it's vibrancy, a sense of, of being in a kind of a happening, busy place where kind of business and politics takes place. Indeed, the Roman author Tacitus, who was writing at the turn of the second century, he was the first to mention Londinium and describes it as a place of negotiatores, which literally means men who negotiate, men who do business, men who cut deals. And I think that London retains something of that same ethos and, and dynamic today. Indeed. And in the city of London, specifically, where lots of uh, business handshakes are taking place, I'm sure. Exactly. Let's talk about the threats to Roman Britain, because obviously, once you've established yourself, there's going to be a threat to your presence. Um, Davis Zach 45 on Instagram has asked, what would have happened if the Saxons had invaded when the Romans were here in Britannia? Well, that's a, a very interesting question. I think I'd start by just kind of clarifying the relationship between sort of Romans and Saxons. The Saxons possibly enter the story of Roman Britain in the in the third century when there are reports of raiding in the Channel, although it's not known whether this was directed against Britain specifically, but some believe that a whole series of forts built along the southeastern shore were perhaps built in response to these raids, but that's only one of a number of potential reasons. However, in the in the fourth century, these forts 
come under the control of a Roman military official known as the Count of the Saxon Shore. So it seems like there was a, a genuine threat to Roman Britain from Saxon seaborne raiders, at least in the last decade or so of Roman Britain. And this is a period of great upheaval, not only within within Roman Britain, but within the empire, when places like Britain were particularly vulnerable and there wasn't necessarily a will or an ability to respond to the threats like this. And then after the end of Britain, of course, the Saxons essentially move into the power vacuum created by the absence of centralised control and military support from the empire. And then, of course, they go on to establish a whole series of kingdoms. So if we were to sort of tackle the counterfactual element of the question, you know, obviously it's sort of very much kind of opinion here. Um, I would suggest that the Saxons probably wouldn't have been successful if they tried to sort of invade and, and take over. It seems that while the Romans were in Britain, they were maybe only a limited threat and possibly only intent upon raiding rather than sort of conquering. The Romans had, you know, very sophisticated military infrastructure and hardware, such as, you know, artillery and, and other sorts of weaponry and, and indeed large fortress that could withstand, you know, substantial sieges. And I don't think in this period that the Saxons were really set up to sort of mount a wholesale invasion. So my opinion would be that I don't think the Saxons would have got very far, particularly if they had attacked during a period in which the Romans were at a time of, of stability when the Romans could have responded to such a threat with force. Makes sense. Carol Davis on Facebook and TJ on Twitter have both asked the same question here. What really happened to the Ninth Legion? So we probably need to explain what that is first. <laughs> so uh, it's a really interesting question. It's a common question that, that people often have. The Ninth Legion have this sort of mystery and mystique about them. So the Roman army is split into legions, each allocated about 5,000 soldiers, each have a number, each ha- normally have a sort of a, a nickname and, and their own sort of symbols, and, and each are in possession of an eagle standard. And the ninth was one of the, the legions that was involved in the conquest of Britain. But the last mention that we have of the ninth as being active was in 108 AD at a base in York, so some sort of 70 or so years into the conquest of Britain. And then they sort of disappear really from the historical record. There is an account of the units of the Roman army that's produced in around about AD 165, and they're not mentioned. And we don't have any historical accounts that describe what happens to them. And there are various theories as to what occurs, that they are essentially lost, maybe defeated in battle, maybe massacred to a man, if you believe some of the more brutal and salacious sort of accounts, or else they took a bit of a battery in it during a campaign and, and were then sort of disbanded. And we don't know what exactly happened to them. We don't know where that happened, whether that was in Britain or they got transferred and were lost in, in other wars somewhere else in the empire. And there are various pieces of evidence that kind of give us a little window into what might have happened. But ultimately, it's one of those questions that we can't answer definitively. But if you want to read an ingenious and imaginative story of what happened, then I would recommend that our listeners seek out The Eagle of the Ninth by Rosemary Sutcliffe, which was written in the 1950s 
telling the story of what might have happened to the ninth. And it's a, a classic work of historical fiction. Wow. Interesting. Okay, well, let's round off our first set of questions about the Roman occupation of Britain. And Matthias Adrian on Twitter has asked, why did the Romans leave? What's the answer, Francis? Well, good question. So officially, if you look in your history books and, you know, to answer the exam questions, the end of Roman Britain is 410 AD. So that's when officially the empire no longer includes Britain as part of it. And so people have said, well, you know, that's when every Roman, whether they're a soldier or some sort of civil servant or equivalent official, gets up and leaves Britain. But that's not the case now. It's much more complicated. So the story probably starts earlier. So before 410, there's been a gradual reduction in the number of troops in Britain. And that's for various reasons, whether it's problems elsewhere in the empire that we talked about when troops in the first century had to go over to the Danube. But in the last half of the fourth century, there's quite a few problems with commanders in Britain declaring themselves emperor. So then what is known as a usurper. So for instance, in 383, we had Magnus Maximus, who removed troops from the north of Britain. And then in 406, Constantine III, another usurper emperor, is thought to have completely stripped the garrison of Britain and taken the troops to Gaul. Because often the soldiers who declared themselves emperor in Britain also took Gaul as their area that they were emperors over. And in 406, there's a really famous episode called the Crossing of the Rhine. So the Rhine River was another frontier in the Roman Empire, this time a natural one. And the crossing of this was a real kind of critical point in the kind of decline it's seen in the Western Roman Empire. It was a crossing by a mixture of different tribes from outside the empire. Some of them were Vandals or some Alans and Swaby and, and others. And so Constantine III is sort of taking the garrison from Britain to help supposedly stem this crossing of the Rhine. The date of 410 comes about because some officials in Britain send a letter, supposedly, to Emperor Honorius, who was the official emperor, to request assistance in kind of defending themselves from other attacks. And suppose the letter that comes back to them in 410 tells the Roman cities to see to their own defence, which some scholars say is kind of a bit of an acceptance by Honorius that Britain's out of the empire because he's saying, you know, let's get on with it and that's it. Others say, oh, they were thinking they would go back and into Britain later, whichever way you think. That's why the 410 date comes. And so the Romans had already started to leave Britain before 410, but equally the ones that were left also didn't just leave in 410. So we have evidence at Burdell's Old Roman Fort, which we've talked about one of our previous podcasts, which shows even upon the wall, there's continuity of occupation past 410. So even when supposedly Constantine III or Magnus Maximus have taken the troops away, some must have been staying up on Hadrian's Wall and continued to live there past the end of 410. So it's complicated, really. I suppose, why did the Romans leave Britain? If we go back to the original question, it's because Britain was no longer seen as part of the empire. So if you wanted to stay in the empire, whether that maybe your job depended on you being part of this kind of official system, that's why you left Britain. But equally, Britain had already kind of started to detract itself because of various things before that. It's very nuanced, isn't it, really? And this date of AD 410 is very kind of tenuous with very, as you've described, open interpretations. So it's the date that the history books demand, but it's just it's so much more complicated than that, isn't it, really? 
Well, exactly. You know, you need the beginning, you know, 43, and you need the end for your exam paper and for people to learn dates, don't they? But nothing's ever that simple, is it? And yeah, I think it's easier sometimes to rely on literary sources because they give you set dates. But once you start to look at the archaeology, the situation is so much more complex. Absolutely. Speaking of complex archaeology, where there have been uh, lots of digs, and we're talking about Hadrian's Wall next, and the various forts dotted along the 73-mile stretch, Paul Caroline Nicklin on Facebook would like to know how bad being posted next to Hadrian's Wall would have been for soldiers there. So I think it depends where they came from and what their expectations were. We know that most of the soldiers who were based and stationed on the wall, didn't come from necessarily extremely sunny Mediterranean parts. But what might be quite useful is there's a couple of historians who tell us a little bit about what they thought the weather was like in Britain at the time. So there's a Greek historian and geographer called Strabo who says, their weather is more rainy than snowy, and on the days of clear sky, fog prevails so long a time that throughout a whole day, the sun is to be seen for only three or four hours round about midday. So Strabo is pretty scathing, but Tacitus, who Andrew's already mentioned, uh, right in the late 1st, nearly 2nd century, said, The sky in this country is deformed by clouds and frequent rains, but the cold is never extremely rigorous. So he's saying cloudy and rainy, but it's never super cold. I mean, everyone who lives in Britain will know our weather isn't perfect, but many of the soldiers on the wall were coming from places such as Gaul, which is kind of France, or Germany, Belgium. Some of them came from, say, Romania or Syria. And, and um, the Asturias the as cavalrymen. well, from modern, modern yeah, day Spain. Yeah, the cavalrymen at Chester's, they're from northern Spain. So they're used to, some of them would be used to similarish climates. So we have, you know, what we have here in northern Britain. Some of them would be used to much more extremes. You know, parts of Syria and in the northern mountains of Spain could be very, very cold. So it's not as simple as you might think. You know, we always make jokes, don't we, you know, these poor soldiers up here. But equally... It was on the edge of the empire. Things would have felt more remote to them. They would have been able to get supplies that the army would have been used to. There would have been olive oil and wine and their fish sauce that they like, that garum. And, you know, every fort had a bathhouse. You know, they're still trying to provide the soldiers with things that they're used to, the kind of home comforts. But equally, they are on the edge of the empire. And so things might have been slower to get there and there might have been more limited supplies. So it's probably not going to be the best posting. But it probably also wasn't necessarily deemed the worst. I like how those uh, early authors almost weather watchers as well. Early meteorologists in a way. <laughs> but while you're a soldier up on Hadrian's Wall, contact with family would have been quite important. Amanda on Twitter wants to know how long it would have taken for a letter from Rome to get to the wall. So this is a, a great question for kind of getting to grips with the sort of the infrastructure of the empire. But I'll firstly just ask... A supplementary question which is like who is getting the letters from Rome that's that's what we've got to kind of think about it's unlikely to be your average soldier in the garrison of Hadrian's Wall as we just heard from Francis these soldiers were at least initially derived from across the provinces of the Roman Empire and then increasingly as these garrisons became more static a lot of their families would actually be in the vicinity of the forts and, and living along the frontier so you may find that you're actually going to have to correspond not so much with Rome, but potentially with other places within the, the empire. And certainly there was infrastructure set up to facilitate that. However, some of the, particularly the commanding officers, would have been 
individuals of great wealth and status, probably of the equestrian class. So essentially kind of like the knights, essentially, of the empire. It's equivalent to sort of like a medieval kind of knightly sort of status, minor aristocracy. And they might well have, if not have been born in Rome or, or at least have, have kept houses there or else have needed to communicate officially with the sort of the, the imperial court. So let's imagine that an urgent message had to get from Rome to the frontier of uh, the north, northwestern frontier of the empire. And it would be surprisingly efficient, I think. So the Roman Empire is well connected. Not only are there lots of well-maintained roads, but also sea routeways which were open for official traffic. Along the network of roads, there would have been official mansiones, which are kind of like hotels, and also smaller stationes positioned to sort of facilitate fast movements. So if you needed to get a message urgently sent somewhere, a messenger on horseback could ride between these, these different stations and get kind of fresh horses and, and then maybe pass on to another rider to take it on. So I estimate that it was possible to go from Rome, essentially, to Hadrian's Wall in less than 12 days. And if anyone wants to know more and have a little look into how this worked, then I, you can go online and you can look at the Stanford University Orbis website, which is essentially a model of how communication worked within the Roman Empire done by um, some academics. Interesting. Let's move on to a question about what these Roman soldiers on Hadrian's Wall would have worn. And this is from Nicola Lamb on Twitter, who wants to know how much all the gear that they wore weighed. So Francis, uh, do you have an idea? Yep. So I've kind of taken this question a bit more broadly and thought it's probably not just about the clothing, but it's all the gear that they had to carry around, because I think that's something that more uh, research has been kind of done into. But the best estimates for the weight of what a soldier's having to carry, which includes the weapons and the armour, is maybe around 30 kilograms. So it's quite a lot. And soldiers would be expected to march in full kit and be able to do at least 20 miles a day. That was kind of their expectation. But if they're marching, say, on campaign, or moving between places, they wouldn't have to be just carrying their weapons and the armour that they wear. There's a really good source, which is Trajan's Column in Rome, and it's a highly decorated large stone column, which has got lots of scenes of various military conquests and everything, but people use it a lot to look at evidence of what the soldiers were doing and wearing and using. And on there, you can see their carrying lots of supplies and packs on a pole which is slung over their shoulder. And we know that these were called Furca, F-U-R-C-A. And this is probably after a torture frame of the same name, because I imagine the soldiers nicknamed it because of the pain of carrying this on a long march. But just to give you an idea of what the soldiers would have been expected to carry, another historian called Josephus wrote in the first century that on the march, a man would carry a saw and a basket, a bucket and an axe, together with a leather strap, a sickle and chain, and rations for three days, so that an infantryman is little different from a beast of burden. Now, I don't think even in that list Josephus got everything in because he'd also, the soldier would have to carry the clothes they weren't wearing, maybe a cloak, any spare clothes, canteen of water, some cooking equipment. And so soldiers were expected to be pretty fit, really, 
not least because they're having to fight in their full armour, which would weigh a lot, but any time they were on the move, they had to carry a lot of things with them. Okay. Big Big Cheese 2 on Instagram wants to know if the Romans had any known equivalent to a martial art. The answer is yes, albeit if you're kind of thinking, when you say martial art, you're thinking kind of like Japanese or Chinese martial arts with the sort of their patterns and their and their forms. There's nothing quite approximating that, but we think sort of martial arts as in a combat kind of sport, then yes, the Romans enthusiastically inherited wrestling and boxing from the Greeks. Both could be done competitively, for example, sort of in the arena, but also for recreation and health, particularly in the basilica of the public bathhouse. And then, of course, there are the gladiatorial contests. And perhaps when I say gladiatorial contests, our listeners are sort of thinking about that as a popular Hollywood-influenced view of these, which is that they're kind of these free-for-all sort of bloodbaths with a high body count. And that's not quite the case. They were spectacles and there was blood and there was death, but they were also structured, quite closely fought contests. And the practitioners, the gladiators, were elite athletes who had to work at developing distinctive fighting styles that required a high degree of training and and discipline over many years. Let's move on to another question about um, Hadrian's Wall soldiers specifically. Gary Newman on Facebook has asked what the soldiers did on and around the wall when not on duty, Francis. Well, the list would have been long. Um, I think high up on the list, unfortunately, would have been quite a lot of boring chores. So they were expected to keep their equipment, so their weapons, their shield, their armour in good nick. So that wet weather that Strabo and Tacitus were talking about would mean that rust was highly likely on any of your iron either chainmail or lorica segmentata, the iron armour, particularly if you're getting any mud on it. So they would need to clean and repair their equipment. They would have also had to cook. So there's no kind of mess tent or cook unit within the Roman army. Each soldier had to feed themselves. They were given rations um, of grain or other things. And so we think that each contubernia, each group of eight men who stayed together in barracks or in tents when they were on the march would have cooked together. So they may have taken that in turns, you know, one cook doesn't quite work, does it, one a day, but for the week, um, they would have had to grind their own grain. Maybe they went hunting to supplement their diet. And then if they did have any spare time, which I'm sure they did, we know there's lots of evidence of gaming. So playing either with knuckle bones or with a board and counter. Lots of gaming boards have been found along Hadrian's Wall, particularly in the Mile Castles where they were on guard duty more. They might write home or go into the civilian settlement outside the fort and don't know, purchase a new cup or a new buckle for their belt or maybe even go to the pub. The pub? Uh, yeah, the so we think, you know, there were the tavernas, yeah. You know, there would have been those sorts of drinking establishments um, in these civilian settlements outside. But how often they were allowed in there, we don't know, you know, because obviously it's outside the fort, whether you needed a pass to take turns to go to these things, we don't know. But I think even if you were only on guard duty six hours of the day and there'd still be a lot of things that you needed to do to keep your kit and standards up to the military expectation. I suppose the other thing to add is bathing. They had a chance to do that, didn't they? That's true, yeah. They had every fort had a bathhouse. It was kind of a very integral part of Roman life. So they would have gone there again. Whether or not they had some sort of rotor system to get their turn, we're not sure, you know, you're allowed to go once a week. These are the sorts of things we'd love to know, but we just don't 
On a related note to the R&R, did Roman soldiers get holidays? This is a question from David Yarsik via Instagram. Well, as far as we're aware, they're not given an annual leave allowance. So, you know, it's not part of their contract when they sign up like we have at work that you get 25 days push bank holidays. But they could request leave and that evidence has been found on one of the tablets at Vindolanda, one of the forts along the wall, someone requesting leave to come to Corbridge, actually, the Roman town. But we don't know how that system worked. You know, was it unpaid leave? You know, did that you get kind of then money taken off? But we know there were days of festivals, whether it's kind of the high days of certain religious festivals where probably they would have been allowed some time off. Saturnalia, which is the midwinter festival in late December and where we get a lot of our kind of Christmas rituals from, they're probably allowed some time off. But if you're on the wall, someone's always got to be on duty. So presumably, I don't know, it's like if you work in lots of jobs now, there's always got to be somebody in, hasn't there? Um, And you take turns to have days off even on your bank holidays or Christmas or um, that sort of thing. Yes, like the emergency services today or news journalists even. There's always somebody working those sorts of uh, shifts. Matthew, Matthew's got a French-sounding name, so I'll try and say this properly. Drouillard, I think it is. Matthew Drouillard on Facebook has asked, how are Roman soldiers paid? As far as we're aware, paid in coins, and that's one of the big changes that the Roman Empire brings to Britain. Before that, in the vast majority of Britain, there was no coinage. The economy was a barter economy. You know, you bartered a sheep for five bales of hay, or I don't know what, I don't know what the exchange rate is. But yeah, the soldiers were paid in coin and often if you kind of do a quick google and say you know how much were roman soldiers paid the standard answer comes up as 300 denarii a year it's not obviously the same figure throughout the 300 years that britain's part of the roman empire because i mean that would be a pretty uh, rubbish in terms of cost of living but the 300 denarii rate was introduced by domitian who reigned from 69 a.d and so that's probably the rate that the soldiers are paid when they were expanding into the north of Britain and building the empire, and they were paid quarterly. So we know that the strong rooms were always within the headquarters of forts, and headquarters and the strong rooms are in the centre of the fort. So your money would be kept there. Presumably, you could choose to leave most of it there, or you could take out a little bit. There's a kind of we know there's kind of account books, and one of the positions within the army, the signifier, who was also the standard bearer, would be. In, charge of sorting out the pay what's interesting is kind of looking at the differential in pay so this 300 denarii relates to legionary soldiers so the citizen soldiers who were better paid and there's a document being found dating to 192 ad so it's 100 plus years later than when Domitian increased soldiers paid at 300 denarii which showed that auxiliary soldiers were only paid 100 denarii it's quite a big difference and going the other way, centurions, who were in charge of 80 men a century, earned 3,750 denarii a year. So that's a huge increase, 10 times plus the wage of the men in charge. And there were other kind of pay differentials. So some soldiers would have special duties, like maybe they were hospital orderlies or administrative clerks, and they might get a little bit more money. But yeah, the accounts were kept by fellow soldiers who had that as part of their extra duties and their money was safe in the strong room underneath the eyes, which is where the standards of the unit were kept. So they were being protected both physically by guards and by being in the centre of the fort, but also by the kind of protection of the standards, which were seen as hugely important. 
Okay, let's conclude our section on Hadrian's Wall now with a question from Yvonne Stevens via Facebook, who's asked, is it known if any women were in the Roman army? So the short answer is no. Women cannot join the Roman army in the sense of being a soldier and participating in the fighting. Albeit, to refer to my answer above, they could actually be gladiators. The long answer is that even though they weren't part of the institution, they still had a profound effect on life in the army and its ability to function. This is particularly apparent when you realize that aside from periods when the Roman army was on active and mobile campaign, the Roman army is predominantly based around forts and fortresses that don't move. So forts such as the various ones that are are along Hadrian's Wall. And these forts, therefore, are not all male spaces. And in many aspects, they're kind of like towns that you would see across the Roman world. And we consistently see the presence of women in and around the fort through finds of material culture. For example, we constantly find hairpins inside and outside forts, jewellery that would have been worn by women. We also know that the commanding officer would have lived in, in a large house within the fort with their family his wife and and, and children. The centurions also are allowed to have their families with them. And there is some evidence to suggest that ordinary women might have lived in some of the barracks even. And we have plenty of other pieces of evidence for women uh, involved in military life. For example, from from Hadrian's Wall, we have inscriptions that name women who are married to soldiers. Although it is quite difficult to find sort of direct evidence for their roles and their lives, we can be pretty confident that they would have been involved in all sorts of different things, from working as craftspeople or involved in, in kind of trade and commerce, particularly in the, in the extramural settlements that grew up around the forts of, of places like Hadrian's Wall. Moving on to talk about civilian Roman life and life in the Roman Empire more generally, we've had a number of questions about food. Patty G7179 on Instagram wants to know what the Romans ate. I know that's a broad question, but um, what sort of thing? You mentioned the, f- the fish sauce was quite popular, Francis. So, yeah, there's kind of um, a few very kind of famous Roman things. One is this fish sauce, which is called garum, G-A-R-U-M, and that's fermented fish which is basically rotten fish guts, which doesn't really appeal to me. But that was a very popular sauce and kind of addition to many meals and that's shipped across the empire. Olive oil and wine are the two big, well-known kind of empire-wide foods that the Romans eat. But legumes, you know, the vegetables like beans, lentils, peas, they would have been really important, particularly to the lower classes to kind of fill out their meals. The lower classes wouldn't have had a lot of access to meat or fish, but it's always going to be different depending on what status you are in you know Roman Britain and across the Roman Empire but what's really interesting there's been a study which shows a long list of foods that were introduced to Britain so this is all plants and things and I'll just pick a few that people might not know of so the Romans introduced to Britain the walnut the pine nut the chestnut peaches pears the sweet cherry plums turnips leeks cucumbers all these things were not native to Britain before the Romans um, arrived and they brought them in and they also introduced quite a lot of spices and herbs such as celery and fennel, marjoram, mint. So when the Romans arrived the diet available in Britain did expand. If people are interested in looking at what the kind of higher classes of Romans 
would eat, have a little look at Epicius, which is a cookbook. So Epicius is supposedly the author, but it's probably not one person. It's probably a collection of recipes from various people. And it's known as the De Re Culinaria on the subject of cooking. And it was compiled in the 5th century. And it's got lots of recipes, mostly going to be for very rich people. So probably not what most of the people in Britain or up on Hadrian's Wall might have eaten. Another interesting question from Justinian1998 via Instagram, wanting to know here, did the Romans eat pizza or an early form of it? Um, Unfortunately not. Um, No, um, (laughs) there were no tomatoes (laughs) to start with. That's a new world um, introduction. So, you know, it comes from the Americas. You know, the Romans did have bread. They had multiple grains that they would grind to make different types of bread. And some of it would have been a bit similar to maybe a kind of flattened bread or an unleavened bread. And they also did have cheese, but again, not the sorts of cheese that we would always necessarily recognise. So yeah, no tomatoes and no ice cream either. No ice cream. Okay. No. I'm surprised about the uh, tomatoes. That's something that we really associate with the Mediterranean, isn't it? Exactly. So when did they, yeah, when did um, they come over? So it was when, you know, the 15th, 16th century, same sort of time as potatoes. That's yeah. amazing, isn't it? So really, yeah. it was just sort of, um, you know, what you've described, the olive oil, all that sort of stuff and the wine. and Yeah, you know. you know, and any sort of fruits and vegetables, you know, a real range of fruits and vegetables. And they could get access to large numbers of spices and herbs from the east. You know, they had links to, to India and other places that way to get huge. You know, they had saffron and that sort of thing. But um, no, some of the things we really now associate with the Italian diet, they didn't have. If you needed to purchase food or drink or any other items, what could your average Roman bronze coin buy? This is a question from Bates underscore 82 on Instagram. Well, first, it depends when are you wanting to buy it, what period you're wanting to purchase this. So when Britain was part of the Roman Empire, it was 350 plus years, there were three different currency systems over that period. So I'll talk about the one that was in place for the majority of the time. So from up until the AD 270s, there was what we call the Augustan coinage system, which was a gold, silver and a copper alloy coinage. So there were three main bronze or copper alloy coins in that. And the gold one was called an aureus. And the gold aureus could get you 25 silver denarii. So those coins we were talking about in relation to the wages of a soldier. One denarii equated to four sesterci. One sesterci, sestercius, equated to two Depondi, and one Depondi equated to two asses. So there's Cistercius, Depondius, or an ass were your copper alloy coins. They weren't really small change in the way, say, our 1p and 2p pieces were, but just to give you a bit of an idea, you'd get a loaf of bread, which would cost you two asses. Interestingly, apparently, a room in a brothel only cost you one ass, so less. But that fish sauce that we were talking about. A 25-litre amphora of fish sauce would cost you 10 denarii. So that's really quite a lot of money. So things did cost different. And obviously, also you've got to think about things cost different prices at different points in the empire. And there's a really famous document called the Edict of Diocletian. So in 301, I think it was, Diocletian decided to basically list down the standard price that everything should cost to kind of help with inflation, but also taxation. And if you're kind of thinking about going out to drink something what's quite interesting is that they talk about different types of wine and I quite like so normal wine I'm not sure what that one is is eight denarii for half a litre but Sabine wine which is very posh nice stuff 
is 30 denarii for half a litre, while wheat beer is four denarii for half a litre. So <laughs> things back then had, you know, it's not quite the stamp of, you know, the location mark where you can only call it, say, Prosecco or Champagne if it's from a specific region. But if your wine was from a certain area, it would definitely get you a more, a larger price. Speaking of uh, eating and drinking, of course, uh, there's this issue of what your breath smells like afterwards. Sarah Davis on Facebook is keen to know about the Romans' oral hygiene and also has this question about, did they really use urine as a mouthwash? You come to me for all the serious things, don't you, Charles? (laughs) Uh, So there's a very famous reference in the poems of Catullus to a Roman hailing from part of Spain where the Celtiberian people lived. And he mocks, and Catullus mocks this gentleman for using urine to clean his teeth and implies that this is a different practice to one that is used by Romans elsewhere who just use water. And the implication is that one shouldn't do it. From that, we could probably infer that, yes, potentially using urine (laughs) or some form of it could potentially have been a practice by some, but I suspect that it was not a widespread practice. Uh, I certainly wouldn't do it. The kind of the truth of the kernel of truth in the issue is that if you kind of collect urine, it decays to produce ammonia, which is essentially a chemical that is used in many uh, household cleaners today and has been used you know, throughout history for uh, essentially as a detergent or else could also be used in order to bleach clothes. So the Romans actually hi- valued it quite highly as a commodity because it'd be used for doing the laundry. It's also used in uh, tanning leather, isn't it? Yes, I believe so, yeah. Okay, we'll change direction now and talk about another way in which the Romans left their mark on Britannia, and that is with Roman roads. Nicholas Ersip from Facebook would like to know what the Roman name was for Ermine Street. So it's probably worth describing what Ermine Street actually is and where it is as well. So Andrew, can you start us off? So as we've already mentioned, the Romans brought with them to Britain a very well-built and comprehensive network of roads. Um, Ermine Street refers to the road that runs from London to Lincoln and then on to York, all of which are sort of major Roman towns during the period of Roman Britain. To answer the question, we simply don't know what the Romans actually called their roads in Britain. We don't even know whether they had names although we might suspect that they may have been named for emperors as they were elsewhere in, in the empire. You know, so you can imagine there was a road called the Via Claudia or, or whatever it might be. The names that we have for Roman roads today, such as such as Ermine Street, tend to date back to the Anglo-Saxon period and, and are derived from, from Old English. Let's move on to uh, another question about uh, roads. Road building skills. Apparently they decline after the Romans leave Britain. So Janet Christine Smith on Facebook was keen to know about uh, why these skills decline. Well, this is quite a good question, actually, because it's not just road building that seems to stop after the Romans leave. You know, the big construction projects, building in stone, a lot of places seems to stop. But it's not as simple as the fact that skills have declined or the skills aren't there. It's a mixture. It's that building a road on the scale that the Romans did required a big impetus, a big resource input, lots of money, and you needed to have a purpose to kind of justify that. And there was no large-scale authority putting the resources into 
making large roads or having large stone buildings, you know, big kind of construction projects. So it's the same with, you know, of kind of a lot of things that seem to disappear or decline or, or not happen anymore when the Roman Empire kind of leaves Britain or when Britain leaves the empire. It's just that there isn't that impetus. There's not the economic kind of push and there's not enough people to do a lot of these jobs anymore. There's just not enough of a workforce. Or even to maintain them. Yeah, yeah. It's just, you know, there will be some maintenance as and when they can, but the number of people, the level of population does reduce once Britain leaves the empire. You know, it's already started to with the troops leaving, but that population decline continues. We've got a few questions as we begin to round off um, about Roman culture and attitudes. Mixed Vegetable 9 from Instagram has got an interesting question. How many different languages did Latin borrow from, Andrew? So the Latin language is part of a large group of languages called Indo-European languages that seem to stem from what was originally kind of a common language that was now, now lost. So the Latin script is most commonly argued to have derived its alphabet from another Italian language called Etruscan and also combined with the alphabet of the ancient Greeks. So its exact derivation is complex and not, I think, entirely understood. But certainly Latin then, due to essentially the expansion and power of the Roman Empire, then essentially takes over most of Europe. And from that, we get, of course, we get a lot of our modern languages which are derived from it or certainly incorporate large bits of Latin. Absolutely. And that's why uh, if you are a linguist, it's always worth having that bit of education in Latin if you can get it, because it does help. Moving on to religion, Remy CC on Facebook has asked, besides Sulis Minerva, were there other Celtic deities whom the Romans absorbed and conflated with their own deities, Francis? Oh, yes, there were so many. Um, and this happened, um, you know, across the empire. Gods and goddesses were adopted and adapted and conflated. But what I've done is thought I'd just talk about a few. I specialise up on Hadrian's Wall, so they're going to be northern examples. But one that we know very well is a god called Sylvanus Cocidus or Cocidius. So Cocidius was a deity who was worshipped in northern Britain, and so probably a local or Celtic deity. And the Romans equated him with Mars, who was a god of hunting. So you sometimes find Mars Cocidius, but also with Sylvanus, who was a god of forests, groves and wild fields. So we've got a couple of altars on Hadrian's Water, Sylvanus Cocidius. So that's merging you know, Cocidius and Sylvanus. An example where it's kind of even more complicated with that is that we have an altar to a god called Mars Thinkscus. Mars, obviously the Roman, Mars Thinkscus is a Frisian version of that god. So Frisia is um, in an area in what we would now call Holland, the Netherlands, and he was worshipped by soldiers who'd been stationed on Hadrian's Wall from that area. So you see they're even bringing their conflated god over to a new part of the empire. And then we also have not just kind of absorbed and conflated deities, but we have deities who are probably worshipped before the Romans arrived, but with there no, being no written sources and no real depictions of them. We don't hear about them until the Romans arrive. So there's Coventina, who's a goddess of a spring, and there's a well dedicated to her outside Carabruff, Roman fort, and with 20-plus altars dedicated to her. And there's also some a god or gods, we're not, we think probably plural, who are known as the Veteres or the 
Huitras, there's multiple spellings. They're only known on the wall. We don't really know what they were the deity of, but the Roman soldiers stationed up here certainly thought they were important enough to offer altars to. So, you know, Roman religion was polytheistic, it was adaptable, and it grew every time they heard about a new god, really. Looking at other sections of Roman cultural life, there's this question about representation of women. This is from Hazel Birdsall on Facebook, who wants to know what role women had in public life. So were any sort of senators, politicians, this sort of thing? So I I guess officially women could not hold any of the offices of the Roman state. So when we're talking about being members of the Senate or being part of the cursus honorum, so sort of the career ladder within the um, imperial administration, or indeed uh, hold the emperorship. And so it does tend to be men who grab the sort of the focus of the histories that we have and, and, and the official documents. But we do occasionally kind of get a window into how powerful and influential women could be. If we say look at some of the members of the imperial household, we do have evidence of powerful leading women who are married to emperors, such as uh, Livia, who was married to Augustus, or Agrippina the Younger, who was married to Claudius, and being able to exercise quite a great degree of control and influence over over their spouses. I think most compellingly, there is also the Empress Julia Domna, who was married to the Emperor Septimius Severus, who travelled with Septimius Severus to Britain in 208 AD and is, is seems to be is very unusual for a female member of the royal household to do this and her presence sort of implies that she is almost kind of in partnership really with the emperor and we know from various historical sources that she was had a very strong reputation as a patron of culture and philosophy and and was probably extremely uh, highly educated and and active within the court. And it may be that 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 is indicative of what's going on further down the career ladder. It's just we don't necessarily always have the evidence that we might might have. What we do know that women hold official positions uh, are in matters of religion. So women were priestesses, and that's vital to the uh, success and the safety of the empire. So, for example, it was only women who could become Vestal virgins who tended the sacred fire in the Temple of Vesta in Rome. This was considered to be paramount to the safety and security of the Roman state. Francis, have you got anything else to add on uh, the representation of women in public life? Yeah, I suppose it depends what you think about as public life. If you're thinking of them being high-ranking you know, or having big positions of power, then, you know, like Andrew says, very limited options. You know, women weren't legally, didn't really have any rights. But we do know about women owning land, you know, running businesses. So the very traditional picture of a Roman woman is that she stays at home, weaves cloth, raises children. But there's occasional glimpses where, particularly there's one woman known about through sources who has a huge estate and is, you know, really a very extensive landowner but most women really were kind of reliant on their fathers or their husbands whoever was legally in charge of them kind of letting them do things it was um yeah not great for women the only thing i'll sort of add to that is that we do know that aristocratic women would have been literate highly educated and we kind of get some glimpses of the fact that they were engaged in the sort of the cultural life of the empire at least And actually, the problem that we have is not necessarily that they weren't participating, but actually that the evidence doesn't survive. So, for example, if we think about poetry, 
we do know of female poets, two of which were called uh, Sulpicia, who were well regarded by some of their contemporaries. But the works of potentially many more have have been lost, and and they may well have been the the tip of the iceberg from a, from a, you know a sort of a, a elite women who were very much up there with the men in terms of their their engagement in the arts and culture. So if that is indicative of a, of a broader picture, it may be that women have more of a role or had more of a role than we understand. It's just that we don't necessarily always have the evidence in order to be able to kind of expand and, and to give a kind of a nuanced and detailed picture of what they actually contributed. In terms of other representation then, is there evidence for LGBTQ plus life in Roman times? This is a question from Dr. Bungus on Instagram. Yeah, so sort of picking up on, on what we just talked about, often it's very difficult to kind of get an understanding of what is going on at sort of the very bottom or, or even in the middle of Roman society. But if we judge by what we know of um, is going on within sort of elite culture, it's definitely what we put in modern day terms, uh, LGBTQ plus people. It was common, for example, for Roman men, including many emperors, to have sexual relationships with other men alongside their marriage. They would be probably classified in modern society as bisexual, although the Romans didn't really sort of define sexuality in in such terms. They would define themselves rather through their sort of sexual acts rather than by necessarily their sexual partners. And there are plenty of evidence for for Roman men having, having male lovers, as I said. For example, Hadrian we've talked about on a previous podcast, although he was married to Trajan's great niece, Sabina, had various male lovers, including a man called Antinous, who died tragically, leading to Hadrian making him a god as part of his way of kind of expressing uh, his grief, I think. Finally then, Kevin on Twitter has asked, can you tell us anything about Roman citizens' everyday conversations and their hopes for the future? So two questions in one there for both of you. Short answer, no, I suppose. Um, the closest we might get to kind of hearing about everyday conversations is maybe when we see some of the graffiti, you know, the kind of less formal things that people write. You know, the very famous stuff is in Pompeii in Italy where there's graffiti of various natures, some of which is political, some of which is lewd. But I kind of think, you know, and this is perhaps someone might say this is naive, but they're just people like us you know they're living in a different time and quite a different world to us but they're going to be hoping for you know good health food shelter happiness maybe a bit of security a lot of their everyday conversations i don't say if you're someone living in the civilian settlement outside the fort say you were i don't know selling pottery you know you'd be talking about when's your next shipment coming in you know what's selling well you're making enough to cover the rent this new unit that's here they really like this sort of pottery we should order some more of that or make some more of that if you're making it as well it's sometimes when you look at say inscriptions or read some of the literary sources it can be easy to just think about the big imperial decisions or the big movements of armies or the additions of a province or not but actually everyday life it's going to be about the same sorts of things as we want, just minus a lot of the, say, technology and the electricity and the social media. Yes, of course. Andrew, what are your thoughts on this one? Yeah, I, I think like Francis, I think that despite maybe a, a gap between ourselves of a couple of thousand years, people are ultimately people with the same sort of 
immediate needs and cravings and worries and fears. And, and I don't think that's going to change. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we explore the history of Restormal Castle and the remarkable landscape that surrounds the ruins. It's almost a perfect circle. It's the only castle surviving in England designed on that principle. There was actually one other, but that doesn't exist anymore. So Restormal is all there is. It's the circular castle. Thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs>